Saul could not save his kingdom, but he could choose how he would die. And he died not in Shakespearean tragic manner, but in freely embracing God's will and in bravely fighting for his people in war. Welcome to Bible 365, episode 90, The Witches of Macbeth and the Soothsayer of Saul. I am Mayor Soloveitchik. Double, double, toil and trouble, fire burn and cauldron bubble. It is one of the most famous rhymes in the English language, and we know who said it, the witches of Shakespeare's Macbeth. It is they that deliver mysterious and enigmatic declarations about what is yet to be. Their predictions are the source of the main way in which they are known throughout the play. They are called the Weird Sisters. Weird does not, first and foremost, mean strange here. As the Shakespeare scholar Marjorie Garber writes, quote, Usually, however, the witches in Macbeth are not called witches, but weird sisters. Weird, Garber continues, is the old English word for fate. And these are, in a way, classical witches as well as Scottish or Celtic ones. And Garber adds that, quote, the three fates of Greek mythology were set to spin a portion and cut the thread of man's life, end quote. Through the witches, Shakespeare gives us his own rendering of a Scottish story. Macbeth, a general, and Thane, or noble of glam is returning with his fellow general Banquo, having put down a rebellion against Duncan, king of Scotland. They encounter three witches, the Weird Sisters, who refer to Macbeth not only by his title, Thane of Glam, but also by two additional ones, Thane of Cawdor and king of Scotland. Banquo is intrigued and asks if there is a prophecy for him. He is informed that he will not be king, but his descendants will. Macbeth is then told that the Thane of Cawdor had participated in the rebellion, and that therefore his title is now being transferred to Macbeth. Macbeth thus sees that part of the witch's prophecy has been fulfilled and is unsure at first as to how the final part of the prediction, his becoming king, will be realized. His wife, Lady Macbeth, pushes him to do the deed while King Duncan is their guest. She would get the king's guards inebriated while Macbeth murders Duncan in his sleep, and they would frame the guards. This starts Macbeth in a terrible path to evil that ends in his own downfall. This is the tragedy of Macbeth, starting with a moment of greatness and heading downhill. And as we bring the story of Saul to a close, we might be tempted to at least initially suggest that the same sort of tragedy can be discerned in the story of Saul. Saul seemingly is chosen for a royal position for which he did not ask, but is granted. He is acclaimed as king, at least in part because he has the makings of a mighty warrior. Saul is informed that another will place his family on the throne. And this drives him to madness, as a darkness takes hold of him that leads him down the road to destruction. And at the end of his life, we find Saul seeking out the guidance of what in Israel is an abomination, the witch of Endor, some sort of soothsayer, who seems to bring back Samuel from the dead, a story that we will discuss today. There are therefore those who have suggested that Saul is Shakespeare's inspiration for Macbeth. Macbeth, who encounters witches. Macbeth, a warrior seized by darkness. Macbeth, who in the end goes to his death. But of course, there are enormous differences between these two figures and their stories. Saul meets a witch at the end of his story, not like Macbeth, who meets one at the beginning. And whereas Macbeth's downfall and death will be celebrated by all, David himself will deliver one of the most famous eulogies for Saul, strikingly mourning for the man who tried to kill him. This hints to us that Saul's story is somewhat different, and also may perhaps inspire us to ponder why Jewish writings do not contain a tragedy like Macbeth in the first place. 
As Saul prepares to face the Philistines in battle, he has no way of seeking guidance from God. Samuel is dead and the Lord refuses to provide the monarch any guidance. Saul therefore seeks a witch, a necromancer, a soothsayer to help him, though this is considered an evil in Israel. Chapter 28, verse 7. Then said Saul to his servants, Seek me a woman who is a medium, that I may go to her and inquire of her. And his servant said to him, Behold, there is a medium at Endor. And Saul disguised himself and put on other clothes, and he went, and two men with him. And they came to the woman by night, and he said, I pray thee, divine for me by means of the familiar spirit, and bring him up for me, whom I shall name to thee. And the woman said to him, Behold, thou knowest what Saul has done, how he has cut off the diviners and the wizards out of the land. Why then layest thou a snare for my life to cause me to die? And Saul swore to her by the Lord, saying, As the Lord lives, no punishment shall befall thee for this thing. Then said the woman, Whom shall I bring up to thee? And he said, Bring me up, Samuel. And when the woman saw Samuel, she cried with a loud voice. And the woman spoke to Saul, saying, Why hast thou deceived me? For thou art Saul. How the witch knows that the disguised man that has come to her is Saul is not clear. But the Talmud notes that there must be something about the way the spirit of Samuel rises that gives it away. The ghost of Samuel informs Saul of a prophetic prediction, that he, Saul, would die in the forthcoming battle against the Philistines, apparently as punishment for how his life and kingship have gone awry. Verse 19, Moreover, the Lord will also deliver Israel with thee into the hand of the Philistines, and tomorrow shalt thou and thy sons be with me. When we hear this prediction, given what we know about Saul from the past, we might expect defiance from the king at God's decree. After all, when God declared that Saul would be replaced by David, Saul did everything he could to murder David and defy the Almighty. Would we therefore not expect Saul to flee and avoid going into battle, abandoning his nation to save his skin? But that is not what Saul does. He prepares to lead Israel the next day against its enemies. And as he prepares to depart from the witch, she, feeling sorry for Saul, prepares a meal for the king. And note well the words, verse 24. And the woman had a fatted calf in the house, and she hastened and killed it and took flour and kneaded it and baked unleavened bread of it, and she brought it before Saul and before his servants. It is Rabbi Amnon Bazak who notes that amazingly the language used to describe this meal is virtually the same as that describing another biblical repast, the preparation by Abraham in Genesis of a meal for the angels who visited him to inform the patriarch of the coming birth of Isaac. In a strange, astonishing reversal, the witch here has become a stand-in for Abraham. And Saul, as he goes to die, has become, as it were, the angel. What could this mean? What is the message of this astounding, clearly intentional, literary and prophetic parallel? The answer, apparently, is that at this moment, the angelic within Saul asserts itself. Saul is suffused with what the Bible has called an evil spirit from the Lord, but there is still some light within. Saul is not Macbeth who goes to his grave trying to defy the prophecy that he will be replaced. Saul accepts the judgment of God, goes to battle, even though he knows it will be his last, and thereby reflects the angelic aspect still in his soul. Rabbi Bazak points to a fascinating group of selected sentences from Josephus, who wrote the following about Saul, quote, Although he knew what was coming upon him, and that he was to die immediately by the prediction of the prophet, he did not resolve to fly from death nor so far to indulge the love of life as to betray his own people to the enemy or to bring a disgrace on his royal dignity. But exposing himself as well as all his family and children to dangers, he thought it a brave thing to fall together with them as he was fighting for his subjects, 
and that it was better his sons should die thus showing their courage than to leave them to their uncertain conduct afterward, while, instead of succession and posterity, they gained commendation and a lasting name. Such a one alone seems to me to be a just, a courageous, and a prudent man. And when any one has arrived at these dispositions, or shall hereafter arrive at them, he is the man that ought to be, by all, honored with the testimony of a virtuous and courageous man. For as to those that go out to war with hopes of success, and that shall and that they shall return safe, supposing they should have performed some glorious action, I think those do not do well who call these valiant men, as so many historians and other writers who treat of them are wont to do. And then Josephus adds, But those only may be styled courageous and bold in great undertakings and despisers of adversities who imitate Saul. And then Josephus further explains, But when men's minds expect no good events, but they know beforehand they must die and that they must undergo that death in the battle also, after this neither to be affrighted nor to be astonished at the terrible fate that is coming, but to go directly upon it when they know it beforehand. That it is that I esteem the character of a man truly courageous. End quote. So Josephus writes, The words bring to mind the scene in the 1967 film A Lion in Winter, where the sons of Henry II, imprisoned by the king, assume that they are about to be executed. Richard, the future Richard the Lionhearted, played by Anthony Hopkins, says, He's here. He'll get no satisfaction out of me. He isn't going to see me beg. And another son, Geoffrey, said, You chivalric fool, as if the way one fell down mattered. And Richard replies, When the fall is all there is, it matters. Saul has one last moment left, but rather than flee, he chooses to die, to fall, to fight with and for his people. This is what Josephus describes. And as Rebazak has pointed out, this is all the more surprising given that Josephus himself did the opposite of what he praises. Josephus surrendered to the Romans. Saul could not save his kingdom, but he could choose how he would die. And he died not in Shakespearean tragic manner, but in freely embracing God's will and in bravely fighting for his people in war. Saul is ultimately mortally wounded in the battle, and he prevents his capture by falling on his sword though it is not clear whether his final end came at his own hand or, as is described in the next chapter, by another who comes upon Saul in the field. After Saul's death, we learn of David's eulogy for Saul in the first chapter of the second book of Samuel, verse 19. How are the mighty fallen? Tell it not in God, publish it not in the streets of Ashkelon, lest the daughters of the Philistines rejoice, lest the daughters of the uncircumcised triumph. Mountains of Gilboa, let there be no dew, Neither let there be rain upon you nor fields of offerings, for there the shield of the mighty is vilely cast away, the shield of Saul. In his last moment, Saul embraces his people and fights for and with them. He does not die Macbeth's death. And that is why David praises how Saul fell. While scholars debate how much free will Macbeth has in the play, the fact is that the name of the genre to which Macbeth belongs, tragedy, is uniquely non-Jewish. As Rabbi Sachs once said, quote, Tragedy was born in ancient Greece. What is extraordinary, given the history of the Jewish people in antiquity and ever since, is that there is no Hebrew word for tragedy. Here is a people who lived through one tragedy after another and didn't have a word for it. When you want to say it in Hebrew, you say tragedia. Hebrew had to borrow the word, end quote. Why is tragedy as a genre un-Jewish? Rabbi Sachs further comments, quote, Tragedy belongs to a world in which there is such a thing as inexorable fate what the Greeks called Moira or Ananke. That is a mindset wholly alien to the Hebrew Bible. In Judaism, there is no prescribed ending, no inexorable fate, because 
We are not merely actors, we are co-authors of the script. End quote. And Herbert Sachs concludes, quote, that is why in Judaism there is no word for tragedy, because the story hasn't ended yet, and life is life, not art. End quote. This week, we mark the first yard site, the first anniversary of the passing of Herbert Sachs. We therefore remember one of his most famous phrases, that Judaism is the rejection of tragedy in the name of hope. This we bear in mind as we bid farewell to the story of Saul and the incredible reign of David begins. This is Mayor Soloveitchik. Looking forward to learning together tomorrow. Signing off.